Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Leviticus. We're going to be in two verses, Leviticus 19, 13, and eventually, well, we're going to take Deuteronomy 5, 19, which is one of the Ten Commandments as well. Leviticus 19, verse 13, we're just going to take the first part of that verse. Leviticus 19, 13, and then I'll read Deuteronomy 5, 19 as well. All right, Leviticus 19, verse 13, these are the words of God. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. And Deuteronomy 5, 19 says, you shall not steal. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your word, the gift of knowing that which you require of us and of our neighbor. We realize that the task of discipling this nation is a daunting one. We have injustice in our streets and bribery in our courts. We have sought to enact justice apart from your law, your standard, and because of it, we have heaped a tremendous amount of judgment and problems upon ourselves. We need clarity of thought as we discern between good and evil. So may your spirit use these gifts. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. 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 So <clears throat> we're continuing our Politics of Humanism series, and I wanted, I wanted tonight to really just examine what has undoubtedly become the single most issue of systemic injustice of our day, and that being the drug war. So when you think about humanism and everything humanism touches, clearly the matter of justice is at the forefront of what the humanist likes to perpetuate. Now, if I had to guess, I imagine that just about every single one of us in this room <laughs> has been asked this question in this way. Are you ready? In a theonomic society, what would blank look like? What would blank look like? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Have you ever been asked that question? Um, when you have the convictions that we have about Scripture, um, there's a good chance that a family member or a friend or somebody may have come to you and said, look, since you regard God's law as important for a social order and you believe it to be thoroughly relevant for providing answers, well, okay, then tell me, Mr. Know-it-all. Maybe they, maybe they say that, maybe they don't. What does it look like when we think about this or that issue? What, tell me practically what God's law would say about this or that issue. Now, that is a great question to ask. It's a phenomenal question to ask. Sadly, it's a question that does not get asked much in evangelicalism today because, by and large, we have forsaken God's law, God's standard, and we've deemed it wholly irrelevant and completely impotent to provide any coherency as it pertains to the issues of today. See, many Christians do not first ask the question, what does God's law say? Because they are trained to search for solutions apart from what God says. Many Christians don't ask the question first. They don't first ask, what does God's law say? Because they have been trained through constant repetition of the milk of the word not to be able to discern between good and evil, and therefore they're also finding solutions uh, in other places. 
I can think of nothing else but, oh, well, the government handles welfare. We don't need to. Now, quite literally, the Christian church here in the West is unable, is unable by and large to discern between good and evil on matters like this. And that's because we need to be able to not only have the milk of the word, but move on from the milk of the word to the meat of the word. Now, you couple that with an insistence upon gospel over against uh, the oppressive, quote, the oppressive nature of the law over here. And what do you get? You get a recipe for disaster. But we always reject these false dichotomies wholesale, and instead we find solace in Christ and his law word, which means for us, we love the question. We love the question. We love to answer the question, in a theonomic society, how should we think about X? How should we think about education? How should we think about politics? How should we think about socialism? And how should we think about drugs? We love the question, not because we have it all figured out. I don't think any of us in this room would say that. We don't have it all figured out, but because we love the question because it honors God. The question honors God. Because when you're asking in a theonomic society, what does this look like? You are asking, what does God's standard look like? So it honors God when we see a problem and then we look to his word and we appeal to him for an answer. It honors the spirit's regeneration in our lives when we look for solutions in the very words that he inspired. And this means that we are Christians. We value regeneration and we value everything that's promised therein. And Ezekiel 36 tells us that God would put his spirit inside of us And he would cause us to walk in his ways. He would literally take the heart of stone, that unregenerate, God-hating heart of stone, and he would tear it out, and he would put in place a heart of flesh, a heart that beats for the glory of God. So he would quite literally take the law and internalize it. He would write it on the hearts of his people. So we call this being born again. And usually the latter part of this promise about the law being written on the heart is usually left out of the equation. To be born again is to love God's law and seek to understand and apply God's law. See, in Christ, in Christ we die to the legal demands of the law. In Christ, we die to the legal demands of the law, having been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Right? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life I live now by faith, I live in this, by faith in the Son of God, right? We've been crucified with Him. We've died to the legal demands. But also is true in Christ, we receive a new legal status before God and before His standard, one which grants us now the ability to love it and to live within it. See, children, I want you to get this too. Listen carefully. I want all of us to be able to say like David says in Psalm chapter 119, He says this in in verses 97 to 100. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Who 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 among us can say that? It's my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. There's an interesting thought. For they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. He even says, I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. See, this praise 
comes from the lips of a regenerate man. A regenerate man who has God's law internalized. He loves it. Why? Because it's, it's God's. See, in other words, since we are gospel people, or more precisely, we are gospel of the kingdom people, we believe it to be important to ensure that we are always exercising proper discernment, utilizing the Holy Spirit of God who has taken up residence inside of us, and doing so by appropriating what God has said in his word and then figuring out how to apply it. So, with that said, what should we think about the drug war? What might God's word tell us about it in a, in a theonomic society that is, is full of transformed, regenerate people who have been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, what might we do about the issue of drugs? Now, to start, I have to say up front that you're not going to find a Bible verse that says, thou shalt not do drugs. <laughs> we know that. That's not going to be found in Scripture. Um, in fact, the modern invention of pharmacological drugs wasn't an issue 2,000 years ago. You couldn't go in Jerusalem and um, pick up that blood thinner medication. <laughs> Hadn't been invented yet. So, so, so we, we get that. However, as is routinely the case, understanding what God's law says about any issue means that we're going to have to understand abiding principles from Scripture and a wide range of, of concepts that span the course of the entire Bible. So this isn't obviously a matter of looking at one particular verse. Instead, it's a matter of putting together some semblance of a coherent systematic so we can properly see all the issues that are at play. Now, having said that, let's look at our verses again. I want you to see where this is coming from, and I'm going to refer to some other ones as well. Leviticus 19.13 says, You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. You shall not oppress your neighbor, that's key, nor rob him. Deuteronomy 5.19 and the Ten Commandments, you shall not steal. Now, in God's law, there are a lot of ways these things are stated. Lots of different ways those concepts are stated. There are many verses that will tell you and state the objective standard of God's law. They're out there. We must not rob, we must not steal, we must not oppress our neighbor. There's case laws all up and down Exodus um, and Deuteronomy that speak of this issue. As discussed, though, back in our sermon on socialism, the principle of ownership, though, is embedded in, within creation. The principle of ownership. So I'm building you a theological argument for the issue of drugs. So start there. The principle of ownership is embedded within creation. God, the creator, we know, owns the world, and he owns everyone in the world. All of it belongs to him. So God grants us this derivative ownership. We have an ownership that's derived from his authority, and, and we have a stewardship that goes with it, and that comes to man as we labor in the world for the dominion covenant. So know that. Even, even in his rebellion... God's law still always applies and abides. So it's still objectively true from Scripture that an unbeliever ought not to steal from his neighbor. So we, don't, we reject entirely this notion that God's law is only for the Christian. The, not stealing something from your neighbor applies to everyone. It doesn't matter where. So know that. Right off the bat, taking someone's property is immoral. It's immoral. 
See, encroaching on someone's person is immoral. So it's also still objectively true from Scripture that the purpose, we know, of the civil magistrate is to enact justice on violations of this sort of thing, right? So Romans 13 gives the magistracy the sword of justice, not welfare, not mercy. So hold these concepts in, in your mind for right now. We have a derivative ownership. Everything's derived from God who owns everything. It's objectively true, no matter for who or whom, that stealing is wrong, encroaching on someone's person is wrong. You can't just go around accosting people. That's wrong. Doesn't matter who we're talking about. But it's also true that there are stipulations in God's word for the magistrate who is only allowed to enact justice when those things happen. So keep those there. Now, all of that to say means that basically, according to biblical law, the only time that the state should intervene in the lives of people is through the magistrate, right, is when he is called, or she, as it were, is called to hear a case where a victim has pressed charges and is seeking justice for a violation of his life a violation of his property, and a violation of his liberty. That's the only time we should ever hear from anyone in the civil justice realm. That has massive implications, right? I mean, the, the job of the state is to give justice when a crime has been committed, not create crimes out of thin air. That's the issue. The job of the state is to provide justice when a crime has been committed and proper, uh, proper due process has been followed, not go around and create laws out of thin air. So, like, already you should be thinking, well, okay, that means we, that has massive implications for how we, be, how we view police. How should we, be, how, do, how do we view police? How do we view the drug war? If, if that's true, that the job of the magistrate is to enact justice when a victim is pressed charges, due process has been followed, two or three witnesses are there, if that is true, and it is from Scripture, then that has massive implications. Now, I referenced a moment ago Psalm 24.1, right? That makes clear that all men, pagan or Christian, belong to God. All men are His. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. So if you dwell in this world... You're his. You, you are his property. Now, Paul, who understood this doctrine, he said this in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, who you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Speaking of those in Christ, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in Scripture that we are not our own. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We belong to Christ. So the point I'm making is this. When we consider these verses and these ideas and these, these aspects of Scripture, and, and the verses especially about God's prohibition of theft, His prohibition against oppression of others, then and only then can we derive a theology, listen, of individual liberty under God. Back to, not to beat the immigration horn again, but that's clearly another um, issue when it comes to this sort of thing. We like to think that God's law 
uh, sort of has these you know divvied up aspects to it, and that all, all we can do is is sort of just piece it out and guess, do our best guessing. And one of the things we do with immigration is we say, yes and amen. Our rights come from God. They don't have any rights. That's what we say. They don't have rights. They're not American. But their rights come from God. You see the hypocrisy. It's the same thing in this particular issue. When, when you have, you know, don't oppress your neighbor, don't rob him, you shall not steal. You have these negative aspects to God's law, which means we're supposed to protect property, right? Life, liberty, and property, we're supposed to protect those things. When you have those things in place, only then can you have a theology of individual liberty. Individual liberty. I'm talking about you as a person made in the image of God. You have individual liberty. You should be able to walk across the street, not get shot, and not be accosted, and not be harassed. That's individual liberty. Now remember, this is derivative ownership. What do we possibly have that we have not received from God? What do we have that we have not received from God? Not even our bodies. (laughs) Not even our bodies. Our bodies are a gift from God. So the Bible affirms over and over again individual liberty under God. And part of that liberty is, as the Declaration of Independence says, the inalienable right to the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, or property as it was originally understood. Nowhere, nowhere does God's law permit the state to control men. Nowhere. Since there is one God for the homeborn and the stranger, again, that ties to immigration, only God's law gives the Christian and the unregenerate the ability to coherently understand what it means to be at liberty and your pursuit of life, your pursuit of, of liberty as a person, your pursuit of happiness and the pursuit of acquisition of property. See, the dominion covenant is inescapable. Even the unregenerate man made in the image of God pursues these things. They're simply borrowing for our worldview. So to sum it up, here's what I would say, building the argument. God's law grants us derived ownership over our life, gives us a derived ownership over our liberty, and it gives us a derived ownership over our property. And this is true for all image bearers of God. I'll say it again. God's law grants us uh, derived ownership over life, over liberty, over property, and that's true for everyone on this planet. You have an inherent, inalienable right to those things. Not because the state says you can have them, but because God made you in his image. See, when we have this biblical presupposition from God's law in place, we can now deal with the question of the drug war. We can now deal with the drug war. When we have these things in place, now we have answers. So it's my contention, and I believe it's the Bible's contention as well, that based on the principle just stated, the state has no business controlling what you put in your body, and therefore it has no business waging this war. It has no business telling you what you may or may not put in your body, even if it's harmful, and therefore it has no business in this war. See, the statist war on drugs... The statist-backed war on drugs has done nothing 
done nothing but destroy freedom in this country. The status-backed war on drugs has done nothing but destroy freedom in this country. Let me give you a little history. The drug war started back in 1971. 1971 was when Richard Nixon signed into law the Controlled Substances Act. That was actually a war on freedom. (laughs) We think it was a, a good thing. It was a war on freedom and a war on minorities in this country. Since 1971, listen to this, since 1971, 47 years ago, we have spent over $1 trillion to fight the drug war, to create out of, out of thin air, in the stroke of a pen, Congress passed it, sent it to the desk, Nixon signed it. In one stroke of the pen, we have created a new category of nonviolent crime. At the center of the 1971 Act was the power that was given to the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. To them was given power to determine which drugs would receive which sort of scheduling. The government had no longer, had long ago though before this, determined to control the food industry, and now they wanted to control the drug industry. And if you recall, in 1906, the Food and Drugs Act, that was signed by Theodore Roosevelt, and that was the first in a series of what we call consumer protection laws. See, you're the consumer, and you need to be protected by government agents, because you may do something foolish and put something in your body We need to prevent that. At any rate, the United States government has had an interest in food and drug for a long, long time, and this continues to be the case. Listed on the Schedule I DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency, drug prohibition, listed there is one of the hot topics of our day, marijuana, which my home state just passed in Michigan, legalized it. So, well, that's interesting. Also listed on this Schedule One, heroin, LSD, and ecstasy. Now, on one level, it's entirely laughable that marijuana is on the list with these drugs. It's a plant, and contrary to government reporting, it does not impair you like alcohol. So there's a lot of issues with what the government says. It's funny, like, we, like we're supposed to just trust them. We're not going to let you have this. In fact, we're going to do a study and tell you why we think you shouldn't have it, and you need to just trust us. Right. So the fact that it's on the list with heroin and LSD is a complete joke. On another level, though, the fact that we even have a list like this is yet again proof that our government overlords are doing this for more than the stated reason. This drug war is not done to protect people from hurting themselves, That's what it's said to be. This is done in order to pay the bills of a corrupt justice system. But I'm getting ahead of myself because I have more numbers for you. A couple of things for your consideration. 81%. 81% of all drug arrests are simply for possession. Okay? You can be handcuffed. Your car can be impounded. Civil asset forfeiture is a lucrative business, by the way. And you'll go bankrupt all for the fact that you had a bag of a plant in your pocket. A plant that God made. In 1980, 580,900 people were arrested on drug-related charges. And by 2014, it increased to 1,561,231. 
more than 700,000 in 2014 were related to marijuana. With regard to federal prisons, just about half are incarcerated on, for drug-related charges. Half of our federal prison system is just simply for drug-related charges. One estimate said that by ending the war on drugs, if we were to do that here in America, by ending the war on drugs, we would save $41.3 billion a year, maybe even closer to $50 billion a year. So we would take away, in that in one foul swoop, we would take away tens of thousands of millions of man hours that are spent in courtrooms, office buildings, police departments, and paper trails accumulated by all of them. It'd be gone. If the, if the war on drugs ended, guess what? Our police officers wouldn't know what to do next. They would just figure out ways to get you on speeding then. But there's another aspect to this whole thing. The war on drugs is without a doubt a, system, a systemic injustice as it pertains to minorities, especially blacks and Hispanics. Listen to these stats. It's, it should blow your mind when you hear these things. In 2010, just eight years ago, we had 1.6 million people in state and federal prisons. Okay? Now, do the math. That's less than 1% of the total population. But what if we separate that number out simply by ethnicity, simply by race? Well, whites make up 64% of the total population in America. 64% of America is white. They make up 31% of the total incarcerated. Now bear with me. Blacks make up 14% of the total population. They make up 36% of the prison population. Hispanics are 16%. There are more Hispanics than blacks in our nation. They make 16% of the total population, but they make 24% of the prison population. So 36% black, 31% um, white, 24% Hispanic. That's astounding that you can make up the majority of the prison population but be in the minority of the total population. So th think about this. Out of young black males, one in four go to jail. Quite literally, as one study put it, if you're young, if you're a young black male, you're more likely to go to jail than to get married or go to college. And as far as population, just to translate that, one out of, 11, one out of every 11 blacks are in prison. See, this is, this is systemic injustice. This is the stuff that is on the heels of the civil rights movement. This is the problem that we have perpetuated over and over and over again, this racial injustice. And it's a problem the church is called to address. But do we see the problem, though? Might, might we agree with someone like Louis Farrakhan? Regardless of what you think of the man, he said back in 1990, he said, quote, there is a war being planned against black youth by the government of the United States under the guise of the war on drugs, end quote. And what did evangelicals do to him? Set aside the fact that he's a Muslim. Set aside that fact. We laughed at him and thought, he's crazy. There's no war against blacks through the war on drugs. We, we laughed him off. But he's right. So now what? 
Now what? Well, the reality is the drug war is modern slavery. The drug war is modern slavery. It's kidnapping in every single sense of the word. That's what it is. The drug war is modern slavery. It's a, it's a, a, um, it's a tax, if you will, on society as well. See, slavery has moved from the plantation to the prison system, and the drug war has been the vehicle to do it. But since we're Christians, we have a confession to make. The state is a terrible savior. The state is a terrible savior. Why doesn't the government do something about X, Y, and Z is a terrible way to start finding solutions. You see, the humanist state has to create some sort of sanctification, right? They have to. They have a view of man, and, and their view of man m- means that we have to be managed by other men. Other men have to manage us. See, this usually involves arbitrary rules, bearing false witness. How many stories do we have of, I forget the gentleman's name now, it slips in my mind, in Dallas where the cop broke into his house, shot him dead. And and that's murder, for one, but, and he didn't obey her commands. Someone breaks into my house and starts issuing commands, I'm not obeying them, I'm shooting back. But how many stories have we heard of, of drugs being infiltrated and put in, in, in minority communities? How many times has a young black man been arrested and, and drugs have been put on him by the cops? How many times? Over and over again, bearing false witness all over the place. And we expect God's blessing. These arbitrary rules, creating laws in order to generate funds to oppress minorities. It involves corruption in the police force, a corruption all the way into the court system. Man then has to be locked in a cage for possessing a drug, and then he will be sanctified. That's the idea. See, however, we're Christians, so we, have, we know that law enforcement doesn't Law enforcement does nothing to provide man with moral character and self-control. It does nothing. Law enforcement does nothing to provide man with moral character and self-control. Listen, this is salvation by law. The, the systemic injustice we see in our culture is a result of white men doing the majority humanist thing instead of the biblical thing. See, salvation by law does not work. It can never, ever work. But this is the only thing the humanists know. That's the only thing they can know. Salvation by law. But we're Christians and we reject that. You see, what the humanist calls mass incarceration, we call kidnapping and abduction. Terms matter, right? Concepts matter. And the ability to discern between good and evil, again, matters. And, that, and the only way we're going to accomplish any of that is by calling it what it is. It's modern slavery, salvation by law, it's kidnapping, it's injustice, and let me tell you, it's destroyed people's lives. See, conservatives today will decry the welfare state when it comes to immigration. We can't take immigrants in because our, the welfare, despite the fact that they can't even get those things, but that's a different issue, that we can't take immigrants in, we can't do this because of the welfare system. So they'll decry it on that, but what will they ignore? The drug war. They will ignore it, and they will cheer on the thin blue line, which is simply the arm of the state that enforces injustice. Why do they do that? Because it doesn't bother them. It doesn't bother them. Because you can be white, 
You can be in the suburbs and you can smoke a joint and not have to worry about it. It doesn't actually mess with you. It doesn't do anything. That's a, that's a black community problem, they say, right? Listen, you cannot complain. I was a social worker in Philadelphia during Bible college. I was in the hoods, like in the ghettos, in the trenches, Asian, white, black, Hispanic, all over the place. I've been there. And one of the things you'll hear people say, especially people who don't know what that's like, and they're sitting sort of in their, you know, uh, ivory tower, ivory's white, by the way, and... <laughs> And they have their perspective that's devoid of any context. And they will say things like, well, the, the, look at the black population. They don't have any fathers. They need to fix that. Well, guess what? You cannot complain about the black community being fatherless all the while cheering on your local police department as they create crimes out of thin air. You can't do it. You can't. You can't criticize the fatherlessness when you're cheering on the systems that put fathers in prison unjustly. It's, it's hypocrisy all the way around. See, a government agency controlling something over there will quickly become another government agency controlling something over here. That's how this works. It's like we haven't even read 1984. And this is because we are not looking to Christ for sanctification. The age-old dialectic is this. Here's the tension. How do we maintain liberty without liberty getting out of hand and causing problems with everyone? And the answer is only when we understand individual liberty under God. Governments control all sorts of things. The government controls on things like drugs and how much soda pop you can drink. That's a thing in New York City. Government controls on this nonsense should not be seen as a necessary measure to ensure that we, the patients, are being taken care of by the doctor, the state. No, we should see this as the state being criminal and we are the victims. What's the largest gang in America? The police. They don't want to hear that. Well, that's not very Christ-like. No, that's Christ-like because we're telling the truth. See, if, if, if addictions and crimes are reduced down to mere medical problems, we call that like a disease. They're, they're, it's a disease, right? They're med- it's a medical problem. And then they just need rehabilitation. So, so the government controls the drugs you can buy, what you can't buy. And that, we're talking any drugs, whether that's a street drug or a pharma- pharmaceutical. You, you can't just go get access to Valium. You can't go get access to, to, to uh, some of these um, painkiller drugs, right? They're controlled by the state. Everything's controlled by the state. And then we have a breakdown, too, because you see the commercial on TV. Who saw them before, right? If, if you're struggling with this disease or this thing, you can take this pill. Just know you won't be able to breathe. Your heart will stop, and you'll probably die. But now that puts pressure on the doctors because now they have patients coming to them, and, and wow, I think I have this. And now they're just pushing pills, and now we have an opiate crisis. We have all these other problems. And they don't see it's because the state is controlling it. So if we reduce this down to that, well, we have a different view of God, we have a different view of man, and we have a different view of what sin is. So if we're going to worry, we should probably be worried 
not about drugs, but be worried about the state controlling every single aspect of a man's life. See, criminal law is supposed to protect us from others, not ourselves. Biblical law protects us from others, not ourselves. What a man puts in his body is his prerogative only, not the prerogative of the state who tries to be omniscient and to see everything. So back to the question we started with about God's law, and what would we say about the drug war? In a theonomic society, what would we say? Well, in a truly free society, under God's law, what a man ingests and what a man grows becomes a concern for the civil magistracy when a crime is reported and real victims are produced. That's the biblical prescription for this, no pun intended. See, when someone is deprived of life, liberty, and property, the aggressor is the criminal. The one deprived is the victim. That's one thing I want to talk to our sheriff locally about. I dare you to go two weeks without writing a single citation where the state is the victim. See if you can do it. See, when, when a government agent, well, so when a, when a criminal does it, we understand it's a crime, right? But when a government agent deprives someone of life and liberty and property, we say, well, they're just doing their job. They're just enforcing the law. We give them a pass. But this is wicked and this is rebellion. And the culture revolts, a culture that revolts and rebels against God and his law standard is a culture that is bent on suicide. And that's why this injustice has created such problems in our society. If, if a man doesn't have life or liberty, it, it, he doesn't have a purpose. And if he doesn't have a purpose, he has no reason to live. But a man does have purpose in Christ underneath the dominion covenant. And it's our job, church, to see to it that not only are we in obedience to it, but that our neighbor as well. And the drug war is a gospel issue because the drug war is injustice and there is idolatry that's attached to this injustice and therefore we must speak. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that as a nation we have done nothing but oppress the stranger, the poor, and the marginalized. We, the church, have been accomplices in the oppression, and we therefore repent. We repent for our complicity in slavery and abortion and the growing menace that is the state. We have elevated the central planning powers of civil government to a place that you simply have not permitted, and thus we have heaped judgment on ourselves. We ask and pray that you would revive us, O Lord. Revive us that we may serve you and our neighbor. Help us to to right this ship by being a voice in the wilderness, crying out to you, crying out to our neighbor. We ask and pray for thy kingdom to come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.